Welcome back to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. Uh, I am very excited to be talking to Zach Penn uh, this week. Zach, I asked him on the show uh, because he is one of the credited writers on this weekend's number one movie, Free Guy. Um, but I'll be honest, I've wanted to talk to him for a while. Uh, in part, that's because he has credits on a number of movies that I watched uh, an absurdly high number of times thanks to their prominence on HBO as I as I was uh, when I was in college and high school. Uh, movies like Last Action Hero, uh, PCU, Behind Enemy Lines, uh, all of them I enjoy greatly and have have watched relatively recently, except for PCU. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, uh, he also has story credits on X2, uh, X-Men United, and The Avengers, uh, which are two of the best uh, comic book movies ever made. And he's the screenwriter on Ready Player One, uh, which is a massive improvement over the source, and we can, we can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but Zach has also been involved with the WGA, having served on the Writers Guild's uh, board of directors. And I'm, I'm very curious to pick his brain about the state of the industry as it relates to writers, how they get paid, uh, and how they get credited for their work, which is, I think, something people don't necessarily understand, really. Um, but first things first, congrats on Free Guy, number one movie at the box office this weekend. Very Thank exciting. Um, how, did that, how did that project come about? Um, well, you know, it was a spec script written by Matt Lieberman. And uh, at a certain point, Sean Levy called me up and said, I have this project. You're not going to want to do it because it's too close to Ready Player One. And But would you read it for me? And I said, sure. And I read it and I said, this is actually nothing like Ready Player One. It's, a, it's actually a lot more like Last Action Hero was my first response in terms of structure, which is kind of my big thing. So, uh, you know, Sean said, would you come in and help us? And I said, yeah, I think I know exactly what to do. So, yes, I will, which is usually my criteria. <laughs> Only take a job that you know you're going to do well. And that basically steamrolled into the movie getting greenlit. And next thing I know, it's me and Sean and Ryan Reynolds and my assistant who's in the movie um, in the background. Uh, and it was just such a blast working on. I ended up working on it for, you know, the whole year. So yeah. it was one of those really fortuitous things. Uh, and it came out, you know, we didn't know. It wasn't until we started filming that we realized, holy shit, this is actually pretty good um, <laughs> and could really work. No, because, you yeah. know, you never know. I mean, you know, it could have been stupid or silly or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so th that's basically pretty traditional, you know, rewriter brought in because somebody else wrote the spec, so you have to fire them because that's the way things work in Hollywood. He wasn't fired, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's, I've actually become friendly with Matt Lieberman, and I told him, you know, uh, the only thing I ask is that you pay it forward to the next writer that you rewrite which is to be decent to each other. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, well, that is that is kind of a, a constant story in Hollywood. You know, you get the you get the spec script, and everybody kind of likes it, but obviously there are things that need to be changed and fixed, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what What did you actually? I'm, I'm curious if you can if you feel comfortable talking about it. I know these things can be uh, tricky, but what what did you actually uh, change in terms of structure or story or or whatever uh, when you were when you when you jumped on board? Well. Yeah. What is tricky about it is that in general, and, and I don't think many writers follow this, but I don't think the more powerful writer in the equation or the more, let's say, whatever you want to say, the more the person who's been around longer, uh, you know, it's generally not 
polite to kind of go through and talk about what you fixed in the script. I mean, I could talk about some of the things I added to it that Matt and I agreed on. Um, I mean, his spec script was very much, uh, I mean, it's very similar. He had written a spec script about, you know, a guy trapped in a video game, and I had written a spec script about a kid who gets sucked into a movie. Um, so I know where he felt. But I think mostly what I worked on was really emphasizing Millie's role as arguably the main character of the movie. Not mm-hmm. the most important character, but the main character, which is something that surprisingly Ryan immediately understood and understood where that was, you know, mixing him up. Because he had done some work on the script before I did, and he's a very, very clever writer, not just a great improviser. But that was one of it. But there's also a lot of thematic stuff that I think had been lost in ensuing drafts that I tried to pull back in. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a couple of things in there that people who know me, like the stuff about God being an asshole and, and about everyone wanting his skin and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of the AI stuff. Um, I actually brought in my friend, Mike Micah, who is a, a, a very well-established video game historian and game designer. And he worked on Ready Player One and I brought him in to really help with the verisimilitude of the of the gaming world. Yeah. You know, as as much as we could, obviously. Yeah. Um, do you are you a gamer at all? Do you do you do you play? Yeah. Games? Yeah. Yeah. No, I I've been playing since I was I mean, I made this documentary called Atari Game Over, mm-hmm. um, which is about the you know, the fall of Atari and and the burial of the E.T. video yeah. games yeah. in the desert. I'm the guy, if you look it up, I'm the guy holding the okay. game that gets pulled out of the ground. Um, and they partly hired me because I had made this mockumentary with Werner Herzog called Incident at Loch Ness. So they figured we'd find nothing. So they hired me mm-hmm. to, in case it sucked, <laughs> I could make something funny out of it. Um, but yeah, I started with Pong, you know, when I was a little kid. And I've played Halo obsessively and I've played, you know... Uh, I mean, I've always been a gamer. My kids are gamers. You know, I was a little bit behind on the Fortnite, you know, streaming aspect of it, which my kids were really helpful with. Um, Yeah, I mean, what's interesting in Free Guy is that you you incorporate a lot of the kind of current – uh, trends in video game and video game conversation as much as anything else, the Twitch streaming and all of that. But you do it in a way that's accessible to uh, folks who are not at all part of that world, which I certainly am not. I, I play the I play about two games a year, but I am not a I'm not a Twitch streamer. I don't I don't you know watch the YouTube breakdowns. Um, it was it was the I, I love what you do, what you did here. You basically treated them almost like cable news talking heads. It was like it was like this is this is the world that your kids are kind of living in. It's very similar to your world, weirdly, in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and look to give, you know, this is an unusually collaborative movie because Sean and Ryan are both very, I mean, they know story and they both can write when they need to. So a lot of the, you know, there was initial discussions, but then how Sean chose to use the gamers and and which gamers he chose, although my kids did have a lot of input into it. Ryan knows some of these people, so he went to them. So there was a lot of collaboration. And I would say that's something that's an example of where a director is not lying by taking credit for 
just how much of that was in the movie. Because you can write it in the script and you can't tell how much of it there should be. But I've seen the first cut of this movie and I've seen the last cut. And Sean really tweaked every single time you cut away to someone with a comment. I mean, I, I think I wrote the the thing where I think it's John Krasinski, you know, the confessional mm-hmm. about how many NPCs the character kills per year yeah. and how he feels bad about it. But like Sean really shaped it with his editor and other people. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that was an important thing. And I, frankly, I do think the whole idea that dealing with the AI property of it to take it out of a pure fable, that's probably something I pushed it towards because I felt like it was kind of crucial to, you know, to Joe Keery and Jodie Comer's relationship, you know, was getting some of this out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's a lot of that, Sean. I mean, a lot of that is his touch, yeah. you know, and having a good sense of that. Yeah. I, uh, you know, you know, there, 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 there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk about this movie being a big original property and and a success and how important that is to the industry. Um, could you could you could you discuss that just a little bit, just in terms of like, because you've worked on both original movies and uh, you know IP intellectual property. You you have you have you know kind of as as all writers do now, I assume, kind of dabbled in in everything. Um, what is it? What what what's the big difference for you when you're when you're working on something original like this versus something that is you know a Marvel movie or or whatever? Well, what, you know, when I started working on Marvel movies, I mean, the first thing I did was convince them to let me write a draft of the Hulk in the 90s, in like 93 or 94. So at that point, Marvel movies were like the redheaded stepchild of the industry. And nobody, they were like, oh, it's just a cartoon movie. You know, and I would say it's not a cartoon, it's a comic book. And comic books aren't as stupid as you think they are. And, you know, it took a good 10 years before people really caught up to the vision, you know, that some people had. And, and for example, Kevin Feige and I, who was an assistant when I first met him, we totally agreed on, they treat these things like the, the source material is crap, but it's actually very sophisticated stuff. And it has been, you know, for quite a long time. It's just people in Hollywood haven't caught up with it. So at first, basing it on, you know, Marvel IP was basically like basing it on a pretty good book. You know, there's not a lot of difference. I did not know what we had wrought that now every single thing in the world is got to be based on existing IP. Um, it's become different now, you know, where, uh, you know, it's much harder now to come up with an original take on it. But for me, when I was starting, it was like, Nobody's done a decent version of a Marvel movie. Nobody's done, you know, until Brian Singer did the first X-Men movie, nobody had even come close to capturing the tone of the comics. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the beginning, it was more like, let's prove to the world this could be done. Now it's like, okay, you've proved it. (laughs) How many more times? We get it. Um, So, uh, you know, but look, when someone... Certainly for me, when I write an original screenplay, you know, there's a certain amount of magic to, you know, thinking up an idea and seeing it. You know, I remember coming up with the Hamlet scene with my writing partner in Last Action Hero. We had just graduated from college and we were just talking about it. 
you know, two years later to be on the set, a perfect recreation of Olivier's Hamlet, that the set cost more than Olivier's Hamlet did. Yeah. That was pretty surreal and nothing quite beats that, you know? Yeah. Um, but different IP, just, you know, obviously there's IP that is suited to adaptation, right? And then there's IP that is not suited to adaptation. And then that's where you really have to convince people to go far afield and ignore the fans, frankly, yeah. who just, you know, as I said to some fans on Ready Player One, like, it sounds like you'd like us to film the pages of the book as they are turned. And you could just watch that in the theater. And we're, I don't think Steven Spielberg <laughs> is going to do that. So. No, no. Uh, and and like I said, I, I am uh, I am a fan of Ready Player One in, in part because it is such an improvement on the source. Like it is it is it is uh the the idea was there, but you 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 and Steven Spielberg really teased out like kind of the thematic um, underpinning. I, I am I, I want to you mentioned since you mentioned Ready Player One, I, I do want to uh, discuss theory of villains a little bit. Like so, in in both Ready Player One and Free Guy, you basically have a villain at the heart of the thing who is who is both trying to do a maximalist thing. He's trying to destroy a world basically. But he's also doing a minimalist thing. He's trying to make money. Like, I, I feel like that is a thing that people can both uh, kind of wrap their head around and be awed by at the same time. Um, when, you're, when you're writing a villain, how do you kind of square that circle of making somebody both, like, relatable yet also clearly, you know, kind of annoying and terrible and evil? Well, first of all, I, I never set out to make the villain annoying or terrible. In fact... I try to look at it from the perspective of this person's kind of right. You know, like when you certainly with X2, you know, my big pitch to Brian was, okay, you're almost there, but Magneto's living in a volcano. And that's something from a James Bond movie. The truth is he's a terrorist or a freedom fighter, however you want to put it. And, and he, that's the way we should represent him. You know, we should move away from the comic booky quote unquote elements of it and into this incredible reality that you've created. Um, Ready Player One is a pretty extreme case where I had a lot of talks with Ben Mendelsohn. I was like, in some ways, you're the hero of this movie. I mean, think about what's happening. A, a very selfish and self-centered and, you know, not very nice guy has died and left the single, has left the internet to whoever can win a trivia contest, which is unbelievably irresponsible, right? I mean, it, it just yeah. is. Uh, it's terribly irresponsible. And for any rational person, particularly Nolan Sorrento, this is not, why is everyone celebrating? Like, this is about, this is, people are going to lose their jobs if some jackass takes over, you know, the Oasis yeah. and is not good at management. All the things people don't want to talk about. Like, it's hard running things. It's hard being a boss. And I always try to approach uh, any villain I write by really trying to say, what if they're right? Like, let's just write this as though they're right and let's let the villainy, or, let's let the negative will provide itself. You know, any a great actor will find those shadows. It's always, by the way, with villains, the best villains are people who really have a good plan and their intentions are not, they are the hero of their own story. 
And they also have a pretty good idea of why they're doing what they're doing. And the problem is they start cutting corners. They start, you know, doing things because they're more concerned with staying in office or keeping their job than with the original ideas that are behind. So um, I feel like with both Ready Player One, you know, a little bit less so in Free Guy, but still similar, they're business people trying to keep a business afloat and, you know, it's not that crazy uh, uh, an idea. Yeah. And they are not mass murderers per se. Sorrento has a bunch of people killed, but, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. he's no, he's not Pol Pot or something. Yeah. He's just, you know. Um, so, you know, I have that philosophy, like, on any movie I write or any movie that I really like, you can tell when... I mean, even behind enemy lines, which is kind of seems like this very jingoistic movie. If you watch it pretty carefully, the bad guys are, you know, this is their country and they don't really want, you know, and the U.S.'s policy is totally unclear. So which is what Owen Wilson's character says to Gene Hackman. It's like, what are we even doing here? So anyway, I always try to approach things that way because I just think it makes a more interesting film when when you can't just say, well, you're an evil bastard. Like, you know, yeah. there's a time and a place for that. But most movies are better when it's not that way. Yeah. So I mean, what's what's interesting about Antoine in Free Guy is that he is almost he he, he calls to mind. Uh, I, I mean, I, I feel I feel OK saying this. He calls to mind a studio head who says, yep. why are we why would I make an original thing, you know, what is it? Albuquerque boiled turkey. Turkey. Yeah. yeah. Which is a great line, but it's also like, I can, you can understand why he wants a sequel. You, you understand why he wants that, but also it is like kind of killing the industry, you know, in, in, in a very, in a very real way, because once you, uh, once you kind of get stuck on that track, how do you get off it? Right. Well, First of all, that's extremely intentional. And that, you know, those references, a lot of that probably goes back to Matt Lieberman's spec script. I mean, Antoine, that idea, the character was always there, which is partly what attracted to me. me. I felt like, well, this is not broken. It just, and frankly, I think uh, Taika improved so many of his lines, you know, even lines that he kept similar, you know, he always put a spin on it. But I think you're you're getting at the heart of it, which is he's basically given up, right? He's given up on being idealistic. Presumably at some point, this guy actually like video games, he does know how to code, right? Like he, he does finish dude himself, which is another story. <laughs> but um, that that's really based on my own writing process. But but yes the whole nature of the relationship between him and the game is very much like the studio executive to writer director, you know, where he's like, look, I get it. You want to make something good. You want it to be great. Guess what? That's not what the public cares about. And I don't have time for your little, you know, fantasies. And, uh, you know, that just, it makes sense to me. It doesn't seem that crazy. And I, I think Taika did a great job of, in some of those scenes, he took the reality of some of the scenes way further than I thought he would, which is great. You know, where when he's talking to Joe Keery, there's times where he sounds like a pretty reasonable person yeah. who's saying, like, why don't, even at the end, the, I mean, I, I, it took us a long time to come up with the ending, and I don't want to 
do any give any spoilers away. But the decision that he makes is fairly unusual for a villain mm-hmm. in a movie. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Sorrento goes down shooting. Right, right, you know? right. So yeah, yeah. We won't we won't spoil it. Another thing I don't want to spoil. Uh, but I do want to discuss a little bit. Uh, in, in Towards the end of the movie, there are a couple of Disney-inflected uh, moments. And, of course, this movie kind of moved from 20th Century Fox to Disney and as part of the, the, the big merger, purchase, whatever. I, I'm curious... A, were those scenes, were those were those shots always in the movie? A, B, were they inserted after in 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 concert with with Disney? If if, if that, uh, oh yeah, unquestionably. I mean, look, I just I had just come out of three years of working on Ready Player One, literally, like every day for three years, mm-hmm. and being part of every discussion about every character we're going to license and what we could get and how we ended up with The Shining because we couldn't, the Blade Runner people would not give up the rights, you know, which was insane to me, mm-hmm. but they would not. It was originally a, a Blade Runner sequence. It was the Void Kampf test and mm. some other stuff. Although when Steven said yes to The Shining, you know, uh, Ernie and I were over the moon. I should clarify, by the way, because you pointed this out, you know, Ernie had a lot to do with the reimagining of the of his own book. I mean, he was there and working with me a lot because even he was like, that was my first novel. Like, yeah. you know, it could be better. Um, so I should say that. But, um, yeah, we knew. I told them, I was like, we're never going to get the rights to do anything other than Fox IP. So we kind of didn't even think about, you know, what, the specifics would be because, and I had no idea that Disney was going to buy Fox. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I say that as someone who's, you know, I, I know a lot of people who run studios and I had no inkling it was coming. Yeah. Um, so when that happened, absolutely. I think that was more on the Ryan and Sean levels production had started and they started saying, Hey, wait a second. What about for this sequence? What could we do? So that's yeah. where that came from. Um, I know it is weird because it's certainly a little bit at odds with the ethos of the film and people, you know, one of the things that makes me laugh is when you see people, you know, occasionally I'm stupid enough to read people's responses on Twitter. I try not to, but I love the people who think, Oh, perfect opportunity for Disney to promote their properties. And I'm just like, um, yeah, Disney doesn't need help yeah. promoting those properties. It's the opposite, you know. Yeah. And I think it's re- I think from it's really just out of a sense of fun, you know, that it would just be a fun moment to do. But Yeah. I mean, do you do you think there is any tension there between the, you know, kind of the original property ethos uh that the 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 film champions and having that kind of oorah moment, you know, in the in in the movie with that is that is based on again Without spoilers, like stuff people will recognize from other other movies. Yeah. Well, look, I think maybe it's easier to talk about this in reference to Ready Player One, right? In that what's hilarious to me, it's one thing if we made an animated movie and the Iron Giant came walking into the animated movie as the character Iron Giant and that was part of the plot, and we just did it for like, oh, look, we exploited this character just to have him show up. 
I'd understand why people would think, well, why do that? Like you just did it for the name recognition value. But in both Ready Player One and Free Guy, I mean, Ready Player One is literally about a world where people use pop culture artifacts. And, you know, people are like, you ruined the Iron Giant. I was like, that's not the Iron Giant. It's a person wearing an Iron Giant outfit. Yeah. Like if we made a movie about Comic-Con, you wouldn't be like, Batman was not accurate. <laughs> he seemed like, you know, a fat kid who, from his mom's basement. You know, like yeah. this wouldn't be a discussion. And I think in... You know, in the context of Free Guy, the same thing is true. It, you know, it's actually puncturing the reality, right? It's not like it's set in the Avengers universe, yeah. in which case it would be kind of weird. It's that it's doing exactly what these games do, which is licensing stuff. I mean, literally, I think Fortnite is licensing Free Guy stuff, and they just did Space Jam stuff, and they do with every movie. Yeah. So. So, uh, I mean, I, I particularly think in Ready Player One, it was an absolute commentary on how people use pop culture. But it is, it's just, there's a very different thing between taking characters that people love and then cheaply reusing them in a sloppy way to tell similar stories. That's lame. Mm -hmm. But to reference pop culture... And to make allusion to the fact that those are touch touchstones, you know, like nobody would complain if someone said, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn or whatever, you know, or play it, Sam. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just for yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I mean, I think it's one of those Tempest and a Teapot things where they're kind of aiming it at the wrong target. And I've worked on movies that are the right target for it, <laughs> but it's not these two, which are yeah. very much... It's just like everyone asked me, you know, why do you think video game adaptations fail? And I was like, I have a lot of reasons for it, but this isn't a video game adaptation. You know, like, yeah. why are we even talking about video games? As I, as I said, it's closer yeah. to Elf or, or Last Action Hero, you know? Yeah. Well, let's. I, if if you don't mind, I would like to talk about some of your your previous movies because I am sure. a, again a fan uh, of them. Um, Last Action Hero. I, I you know I I feel like I have been banging a lonely drum on this one for years, uh, and uh, people have started to come around uh, to it. But I know there was. I know that I know it was like a not necessarily super pleasant process for you. I think there was there was some. There, yeah. there, there was some uh, drama there. Can you, can you walk me through a, you know, your process of writing it, but also be kind of what happened uh, behind the scenes, if you sure. feel comfortable? Oh yeah, no. I mean, look, uh, I'm friends with Shane Black now. I mean, I'm not friends with John McTiernan, but I like his <laughs> movies. Um, you know, first of all, if you can imagine, you're one year out of college. I mean, let me take you back further. Four months out of college, I had come up with this idea uh, two weeks after we graduated from Wesleyan, my my writing partner at the time and I. And I had this idea. It's like it's a reverse purple rose and it's a kid going into a movie. And my friend picked up my I used to carry around a dictaphone and he picked it up and said stupidest idea ever and put it back down. And frankly, the people we met in Hollywood in our first year said, that's a terrible idea for a spec. Movies about movies, blending genres, don't do it. And we both felt like, I don't know, we're going to do a good job on this. So it seems like it's worth writing. 
So we actually went to our, uh, you know, it wasn't Blockbuster, but to our local, you know, video store and rented every single 80s action movie that was relevant, um, most of which we had seen before, but we we developed like questionnaires for each movie, like who's the second most evil bad guy and, you know, uh, how many people does the hero kill? Is it personal? When is it personal? Um, one little tidbit I always like pointing out is we watched um, Out for Justice, I think twice, mm-hmm. and we realized Steven Seagal is actually the villain of the movie. Like if you watch it carefully, it turns out that nobody actually knew where his cousin was. Like he goes around beating everyone up because I think it's his cousin yeah. or his niece yeah, yeah. or something that gets kidnapped. And if you watch the movie again, every single person he beats up or kills didn't know anything about it. So it's basically about him killing and maiming a bunch of people <laughs> for no good reason, which I loved. Only yeah. Steven Seagal would make a movie like But anyway, you know, we, we had a blast. We wrote the script. We sold it, which was amazing. I mean, it was, an, you, you know, it was like one of the greatest moments of my life to be part of a spec script auction. And then, you know, went well first. And then we found out that we were going to be replaced, which was a bummer. In fact, we didn't even get into the Writers Guild because we technically never did the mm-hmm. standard rewrite step. And then Arnold signed on. So that was awesome. We had some amazing meetings. But then we started to realize, oh, this is how Hollywood works. Nobody really wa- I used to call up the head of the studio to give him my thoughts. And, you know, it just didn't occur to me that nobody gave a shit what my thoughts, you know, I had been fired. Yeah. And I mean, Shane and I had some arguments because I didn't realize when I was calling him for advice, he had been fired. You know, like he had already been replaced and the guy who replaced him had been replaced. Yeah. So. So, it, it, you know, went on like, I mean, I could write a whole book about the making of that movie. So much crazy shit happened. But I will say that I was, there's a lot about the direction they went that I thought was a, an enormous mistake, a big mistake. Um, a line my wife came up with to her, she was my girlfriend then, to her regret it got held against her. Um, so for me, watching the finished movie, I felt like, this is really not a parody of anything specifically anymore. It's kind. It's as much about Arnold Schwarzenegger as it is about the fantasy, which seems like a, another mistake. Mm-hmm. It was very hard for me at the premiere of that movie, all the fart jokes. But there's no question it was the weirdest summer blockbuster anyone had made, and I did feel proud of that. Yeah. So... It's kind of weird for me. On Ready Player One, it came up a lot because Ernie slipped an action hero reference in mm-hmm. without my knowing it. <laughs> but but at the same time, I'm glad that people recognize it for what it is, which is a pretty ballsy, crazy movie, you yeah. know? It really um, is. I mean, this is how, what I, how I always describe it to people. It was probably 10 years ahead of its time. It was meta before being meta was, like, really cool. Yep. I mean— we basically were 23-year-olds who were saying the audience is – we've been watching The Simpsons for the last four years. You know, Wayne's World kind of is self-referential. The audience is ready for something that's a little bit more meta and a little bit – even in their big pieces of entertainment, you know, and nobody agreed with us at the time. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, 
I mean, I, I, PCU originally had all these commentaries with people talking directly to camera, and it still had a couple of very Simpsons-esque, you know, John Favreau, you know, at the Senate hearing, for example, yeah. uh, admitting he smoked pot <laughs> was was not something that was expected by the people who were making that movie. Yeah. But yeah, look, I, I'm still very proud of it. Uh, I'm proud, and I'm glad that people got so much enjoyment, you know. Um, and and Shane and I have really kind of, you know, there's other people that I have not. There's one or two people, really just one at this point, that I have not ever made peace with. But Shane was someone I quickly made peace with because I do think he's a brilliant writer, and a and so he was ahead of his time. I mean, mm-hmm. he was kind of Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino, in a little, yeah. you know, in some ways. So, uh, yeah, that was a rambling answer, but um, no, it's good. I I would read a book. I would one hundred percent read a book about the making of Last Action Hero. I feel like it's a it, it is a fascinating story. But again, I've been banging on this drum for years now, so maybe don't listen to me, book publishers. I'm not. Yeah. Not, well, not the no. Target. I audience. am very surprised. You know, in that publicity tour, I was shocked by how many people wanted to talk about Last Action Hero. I wasn't shocked about PCU because eight years after PCU bombed, by the way, both our first two movies got made and our first two movies bombed. And then my writing partner kind of bailed on me and I'd start my career over. So, you know, I had a real up and down beginning of my career. But PCU, everyone started watching on Comedy Central, which I think aired it 22 hours a day or something. So... That was one of those movies that people caught up with pretty quickly. So, well, I was going to ask when the the 4K Blu-ray of PCU is coming out, because that is, you know, <laughs> you know, God knows it comes up a lot. I mean, I've what's funny is like I've run into Favreau and David Spade and Jeremy Piven and Alex Desaire. We were all at a party once. And I've been at parties with a number of those people or at events with a number of those people. We all laugh because we were all kids, you know, living in Toronto, shooting that movie. I don't know what the hell is going on with it. Like, I don't know why someone hasn't fixed the awful poster and put out a new, you know, why there's not a Criterion edition of it. I don't know. Um, I think it deserves it. But, you know, it's one of those weird things about Hollywood that, like, your movies sometimes, you talk about this a lot, actually. I mean, you know, just to give some background, I was introduced to Sonny, you know, by a mutual friend. And when I started reading his stuff, I was like, oh, I agree with this guy. So that's how I became, the old fashioned way is how I became a fan of yours. Um, But uh, it's just weird. I don't know why they don't do it. I don't know why they, you know. I'm joking. I mean, I'm joking about the 4K Blu-ray, but it is it's yeah, weird. No. It's, it's weird that the movie is not available at all on either streaming or VOD. You can't you can't even pay Amazon money to stream it on 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 uh, video on demand. And there was there was a controversy about this earlier in the year because someone was like, this is proof that Hollywood is trying to stifle the, yeah. you know, and I was like, no, well, that's not exact. That's not how it works at all. I know a little I know a little bit about this stuff to know that that there's nobody in Hollywood who's like, we are not going to let the conservatives have this PCU movie that, you know, that's dumb. But it is it is interesting to me from a business perspective. And it has to be frustrating for the people who worked on the movie because this is cost. I mean, it's literally costing you guys money. 
right? Like I like if you're not if you're not getting DVD residuals or Blu-ray residuals or VOD money or streaming money, I like it has to be it has to be taking money out of your pocket in some way. Yeah, it's taking a small, a relatively small amount of money out of my pocket, you know, compared to the bigger movies I've worked on, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but for example, my daughter is, you know, just completed her sophomore year at Wesleyan, which is where the movie is basically takes place. I mean, it's all about our time at Wesleyan. Um, and she and her friends wanted to watch it. They had never, she had never watched it. Um, and I had to put it up on Vimeo and send it to her because there was no other way for, I, I have like one DVD of it, yeah. you know, so that's the way she watched it. Uh, it didn't used to be that way, obviously, because it was constantly on television. But uh, I think, you know what, like most things, you know, whenever you think the answer is a conspiracy, the true answer is incompetence. You know, it's just nobody has really figured, like nobody's yeah. minding the store. And now that store is owned by Disney and they've got, you know, princesses to market. So, right. um so it is frustrating. I assume it'll be resolved, you know, sometime soon. Um, I have to say, I was, I've been waiting for the past five years, f you know, for someone to point out, you know, that PCU is way ahead of its time. Even in the fact that, like, the conservatives who embraced it, it's not a pro-conservative movie right. either. You know, it's right. pretty, you know, it's pretty harsh towards, you know, the, the old money delete there it's basically can't we all have a sense of humor about you know can't we joke about this shit which to me you know i just i've been waiting for people to start talking about it because i feel like this fear of political correctness or this using it as this boogeyman has existed for so long yeah it's been around for so long yeah. so yeah, I mean, it is, it is, yeah, I would tell people to go see it so they could judge for themselves, but they, you know, unless you're, yeah, you're going to buy a used DVD off eBay from, you know, Or call else. me, they got to yeah. call me and I'll send them the Vimeo <laughs> link, but yeah, I know, it's, it's weird, um, yeah. it makes no sense, but... Uh I uh, I did want I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about your work with the WGA because I haven't actually had anybody on the show. This is this is a business of Hollywood show. I like to have people talk sure. about like the actual business of Hollywood, and I I haven't had anybody from the WGA on. And I'm I'm curious uh, to get your take on what it's like to work for one of the guilds, and also like kind of your your sense of the state of. Um, the the business of writing movies. I mean, we, the the world of streaming has kind of upended everything so much, just in terms of you know credits and also payments and all that. Uh, so, uh, could you could you just tell folks like what you actually did for the guild and and you know the the role that you held? Sure. Um, first of all, it's it's not a job, nor is it an opportunity. It is a a duty um, to be on the Writers Guild board. There's, it's pretty thankless. And I, I basically did it because a couple of people were, you know, there was a lack of, or there was a need for some moderate points of view who don't, like one of the things I'd say is it's very much like writing movie where I was like, the other side aren't villains who are trying to destroy us. They are our adversaries in a negotiation. You know, it's that's all it is. So, I, you know, some people pushed me to run. So I did. And I ended up serving two terms. That was all I could take. Um, I did, uh, a, 
you know, I was on the negotiating committee for, I think, what was one of the more successful non-strike negotiations we ever had, where mm-hmm. we basically acted like we were going to strike and then didn't, and that worked well. Um, you know, what's hard about it is every it's writers, so everybody complains constantly. Everybody's got an opinion. Uh, there's a lot of smart people, so you have to be careful. You can't just, you know... I kept saying to people when I even ran, I was like, I'm not promising anything will get done because I'm not certain anything will get done. All I promise is I'm going to pay attention in the meetings because Mm -hmm. people who are saying to you, they're going to get you this and get you that. Well, the Writers Guild is not like it's it's not some sort of, you know, government that rules the world. It deals with a very narrow range of issues. So when people say we're going to make sure that more people are hired, you know, like this, that and the other and. You're just like, no, we literally can't do that because we're a labor union. We can't determine who gets yeah. hired. Um, or we're going to stop showrunners from mistreating their other writers. Well, the Writers Guild has to defend showrunners, too, because they're members. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's also this one of the things about the Writers Guild that gets frustrating from the inside is this lack of an acknowledgement that we are not coal miners marching against the bosses. A number of our members are billionaires. A number of our members own the studios that we're negotiating against. You know, I've mm-hmm. written scripts with people who run studios now, you know, yeah. like so. Yeah. Um, but that said, what is true about the Raiders Guild, and maybe I don't want to comment on other unions. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm a member of all of them, but I've never served on any of them. Uh, there is a base level of we need to protect the writers who are getting exploited. Mm-hmm. You know, none of those people in that room, very few of them are the people getting exploited. It's usually a lot of wealthy, privileged, blah, blah, blah people who genuinely sit there and say, how can we take some money off the top and give it to people at the bottom? Yeah. When you say exploited, could you just explain what you mean to folks who don't necessarily? uh, Well, how they're exploited. I mean, people, look, the studios, like all businesses, do everything they can to keep every penny they can. And that's not really the creative executives. That's business affairs and legal Um, I mean, you're seeing it playing out right now with Scarlett Johansson in Mm -hmm. what I think is hilariously, you know, shameful demonstration of I love that they're accusing her of wanting her profits, you know, as though that's not what they're doing. Um, Oh, Disney, we're here to help. You know, it's just a public service. What's she doing? Um, But basically the way things happen in Hollywood is people at the bottom of the food chain you know, if you're a writer who's trying to break in, there are people who will make you write 16 drafts of a script, which you shouldn't be doing before they even send it to anyone. There are people who, you know, get brought onto TV shows and are paid a non-living wage, or even when they're paid a living wage, they can't get enough. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the numbers of ways in which writers are exploited has only exploded because there's so many more jobs for entry-level writers right now, you know? And and mid-level writers, particularly in television, are suffering because they get paid the same amount to work on 
something that takes two years instead of eight months. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's no adjustment for that. Yeah. So there's there's all sorts of really problematic things. I mean, screenwriting is almost a dying art form in that there's so few jobs for screenwriters out there, you know, and it's, you know, the movie, the studios are making so many fewer. Um, I do think there's been a conscious attempt to hire more, you know, younger writers because they don't want to pay as much money, which I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, certainly Marvel has done a lot of that because they realize why do they need to pay someone like me? You know, they don't need me, you know? Um, So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, it's mostly, it's just contractual shit. I mean, I I can't emphasize how much of it is boring shit and the stuff that people think we're arguing for where, you know, family leave stuff like that, where it's like, we, we literally can't, it's not in our purview, you know, yeah. there's federal laws. Why are we even debating this? But yeah. you know, that's unions. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it isn't. So I, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the avoidance of the last strike, because I, as you said, the, the, everyone kind of thought the writer's guild was going to go on strike. Everyone thought like, okay, we've got another strike coming. This is going to be, you know, everything's going to shut down again. And then that didn't happen. Um, could you, could you just talk a little bit about the, uh, about how the sides came together to, to avoid that and what you guys got out of the, uh, out of the, the, the negotiations that you were looking for? Well, according to everyone, always, we got nothing. <laughs> like that's what everyone says. Yeah. No matter what you get, you got nothing. And I'm like, so what if we had gotten less? And they're like, that's the same. <laughs> like yeah. so, and if we got more, still nothing. Okay, well then, why? Yeah. You know, what are we doing? Um, in that case, one of the things that's very, and I, I hope I'm not revealing too much here, but one of the things about the Writers Guild is that it's probably the most varied membership that you could have possibly imagine in terms of salary. You know, many of those people are not employees. They are employers. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who've sold one script and never sold another one, you know, or it's been 15 years. Um, Not as much, actually. Some of those people have gotten pushed out for other reasons. But so one of the things that inevitably happens every single time is that there's a huge schism between these people who think we should march on Hollywood and go to war and then a bunch of people who think these people are crazy. We should fold immediately, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and they're really stark differences. And a lot of what needs to happen that, that'll, you know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, interested in changing the world through the writers guilds. And you have to say to them, well, half of what we have to do is keep all of these people who have a lot of clout and, and are responsible for a lot of the income that the guild gets, we have to keep them on our side. And some of them will always be on our side, but some of them are going to say, do you guys know what the hell you're doing? And on the other hand, you have to get people to be ready to act like they're going to strike. So it's this very difficult balance where you basically have to get everyone to put aside what they think or what their animosity is and basically say, look, everybody act like we're going to strike. You don't want us to strike. We get it. Please just act like that. It'll make mm-hmm. us less likely to strike. You want to strike? Fine. Keep acting like that, but be prepared. <laughs> we might not. Yeah. And when you can get that perfect balance, 
where, you know, a lot of what I did and other people on the board did, you go to the most disgruntled people and it makes, look, there's people who are like, why do they get a say? And it's like, well, guess what? For It's good reason. And also you're not the one who has to suck it up and go do it. We do, you know, but yeah. you have to go and placate those people so that they don't break ranks. And, and that's just a fact because, you know, a strike is a very dangerous, costly thing that often hurts exactly who it's supposed to help, but it needs to be credible. So it's yeah. mostly psychological. And then from there, I would say there's often, there's a lot of psychology to figuring out, well, the studios don't mind giving up this, that, and the other. It's a drop in the bucket. So if that's what you want, they'll give it to you. Whereas this is a thing they won't give you know, because of precedent, and they have a good point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the most difficult one was, you know, over the internet, which was, you know, I mean, I'll just be honest, and I'm generally the person who understands the studio side of things, but, I mean, as you can imagine, they were just trying to cut off the internet and residuals and everything else, as you could expect, yeah. and we were saying, holy shit, that's where a lot of our money comes from, you can't do that. And that's why that strike happened. It had yeah. to, you know, yeah. I think. That's my opinion. But but it's it's all less glamorous. I mean, not that, I don't know, maybe nobody thinks it's glamorous, but it's less clear cut. It's much more of a subtle thing. And often one of the problems in Hollywood right now, which I think Richard points out all the time, is that there's not a clear power center who steps in and says, wait a second, let's, let's be reasonable here. You yeah. guys are making an extra $8 billion next year off of something that you used to pay residuals. And it's going to cost you this small amount. And it means everything to these writers. Yeah, sure. You know, it doesn't matter to Shane Black, but it matters to all these other people. That's how they, you know, and we don't want screenwriters and television writers driven from Los Angeles. That's bad for the, you know, if you're actually patriotic, yeah. one of our best industries is entertainment. So let's not drive it overseas by, you know, making it an impossible, you know, profession. And I think there used to be people who could really step in and kind of, you know, everybody hates it, but like often the behind the scenes backdoor dealing is what, avoids catastrophe and now it's much less clear who's supposed to do that which yeah if you yeah, read yeah. richard he'll talk about that endlessly so uh richard rushfeld uh yes who, uh, the author of the ankler has been on the show before a very good friend of the show good newsletter sign up for it um, a great well, one yeah that was I, that was just about everything I wanted to to talk to you about. I mean, I the, I have a question here about behind enemy lines, but I like I feel weird talking about it with everything that's going on in Afghanistan. Um, it, 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 it's it's an interesting artifact of history that that came out about two months after nine eleven. I think. Yep. Uh, and Black Hawk Down, I think, came out like a month or two after that. And then there was kind of nothing from Hollywood on the 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 military front for a while, which, again, it's just it's a weird accident of history. I was I was curious when you when 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 that movie was coming out, was there any talk about kind of pushing it back and not releasing it, holding it, you know, trying to say, hey, we, we need to cool our jets on this? You know, first of all, that discussion particularly would happen above you in a meeting yeah. that I'm not in, sure. you know. But I will say this, that 
they clearly, you know, they marketed it as a very jingoistic movie, right? And and here's how it is jingoistic. And some of this I know from reading your pieces, but like it is very much about an individual standing up against, you know, complacency or apathy and saying, this is what America is supposed to be. Why aren't we doing that? Mm-hmm. But it's really the story of a botched, it's more like first blood in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, in that it's not saying, look at how awesome we are. I mean, what are we doing? We're rescuing a guy who got shot down. That was one of my first points is like when I got brought in on that movie, I felt like this is just about a guy escaping. That's all it is. There needs to be a Gene Hackman role in this movie. You know, I mean, I literally said we need there to be Gene Hackman in this movie with his own plot that's just as important. It's actually turning out to be a bit of a theme, I guess, in my career is (laughs) pointing out which character is missing. Um, But I think... When you watch the movie, that's very much what it's about is it isn't easy deciding when the right thing, you know, what's the right thing to do. Actually, if you don't mind me commenting on another, what I think is my most unfairly maligned work is, um, you know, X-Men 3, The Last Mm -hmm. Stand, which, you know, people tell me they hate and then I'll go through every scene with them. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a great scene. I love yeah. that with Misty. And I'm, and I'm like, and they're like, yeah, but that scene with Jean at the end of the movie where she's not saying anything, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't a great scene. And yeah. I'm like, so you hate it. So it's the worst movie ever. And, and one of the things I'm very proud of in that movie is that, first of all, The Cure, which was, you know, a, a very, an idea from the comic books, is a complicated issue. And we tried not to just make it, of course, you should be a mutant. Well, not if you're rogue, it kind of sucks for you. But also, if you watch the scenes with the president, I felt proud that he's actually dealing with a difficult issue. He's like, look, I get why people feel this way, but this guy can destroy a city with his mind. So what are we supposed to do? And everyone's like, oh, you're just saying that. What a dick you are. But then Phoenix comes along and it's like, wait, now even the X-Men are saying, wait a second, we hadn't really thought this through. And, And I think... I I mean, I think you could write a good essay on there's a whole bunch of movies that came out at at that time that were trying to address the fact that, like, some of these decisions are not as clear morally when looked at from a 10,000-foot view or when looked at from a different character's point of view, which to me is what makes it interesting. Um, You know, so uh, I think with Behind Enemy Lines, that was another thing we were trying to do is say you know, look, all these people have good intentions, but they're just, it's leading to this poor guy being stuck on the ground because nobody's stepping up to do it. And and it takes someone who gets punished for doing what he did to get him out of there. So, yeah. you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I try to, you know, bring that and it, it's just often, look, you can't complain on a comic book movie. Of course that shit's going to get overlooked. All he yeah. wants to know is why did you kill Cyclops? And when you try to say he wasn't available, uh, and also the character is not as good in the com- as he was in the comic book, whatever. Yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah. Um. um <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. That that I, I uh, we could do a whole episode on on the the first three X Men movies, but uh, we're we're running long here. I I always like to close the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything. 
uh, you think people should know about well, about Free Guy or about you know the world of writing movies in general uh, that you don't you don't that we did not touch on here? Well, I mean, I, weirdly, with Free Guy, the reaction has been incredibly gratifying in that normally, like Ready Player One is a good example of a movie where I would read people's reaction and I just thought, are they seeing the same movie that we made? Like they're talking, oh, it's just a silly movie with a bunch of parts you've seen before. I'm like, really? You've seen Steven Spielberg redirect The Shining? You've seen like, you know what I mean? You've seen him address his own complicity and nostalgia and you know what I mean? Like, it just was like, you're not watching the same movie. With Free Guy, weirdly, people seem to get exactly what it's about and to embrace the things that that it's about and acknowledge, you know, people forget how stupid a movie can be. This is not, it's not a stupid movie. It's got a lot of interesting things going on in it. It's talking about a lot of different stuff that it doesn't, need to in order to be entertaining. But in this case, I have zero to complain about because it feels like that's what people are responding to. So it's yeah. it's the first time the broadcast news, you know, line that I love, um, you know, what do you do when everything turns out better than you expect? You, know, you, yeah. you keep your mouth shut. So, um, <laughs> or you, I forget what he says. You don't, you, you yeah. know, you don't talk about it, whatever it is. So I, I do think that it, you know, if people... I don't know if I could possibly plead for people to be better viewers, but I do think at times people don't, they don't understand how hard it is to make a movie that doesn't suck. Like, just think it's hard to do anything that doesn't suck. And when something comes along and it doesn't suck, you know, it gets one star automatically for not sucking, you know? Yeah. Maybe two. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, two is it, it not sucking is like two and a half right there out of four. Okay, I mean, that's fair. like that's, that's frankly, that's like I'm like, if I'm not if I'm not if I don't hate this thing, then we're 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 on a good good footing right away. Yeah. Uh, well, Zach, thank you very much for being on the show. Like I said, I wanted Pleasure. to have you on for a while. Uh, congrats again. Number one movie in the in the country. Hopefully uh, theaters don't shut down again because, you know, everything right. has everything that's going on. Um, but you should check it out in theaters uh, if you have not already. Uh, it's as Zach says, it is smart and fun and entertaining. So go see it. Uh, I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'll see you guys then. Thank you.